Well, good morning. Thank you, Bill, for reading that. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Hebrews chapter 12. Like he mentioned, if you have, uh, if you don't have one with you, there's a blue one nearby you. I think he says on page 844. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want you to be able to, to follow along there. Uh, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer as we start. God, we thank you for everything uh, that you've already done this morning in our midst. Thank you for everything that you've done in our lives. Thank you for all the reasons uh, that we have to celebrate today and many more that, that we probably never even realized. Um, and so, God, as we come to this point in the service, God, we pray that your word would, would be living and active like a two-edged sword that cuts even to the, mo- the bone and marrow, God, that, that you would overcome uh, the enemy and just have your way in this room. Lord, we just pray that, that Jesus will get the glory from all this. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, if you've listened to me talk for any time, you know uh, that one of the things about me is that I love sports. I've always, I've always loved them. I've always been active in them, always played them. But despite that, I've never really been a runner. Um, for instance, uh, I'm a parks so that means that none of the parks got blessed with speed, so track and field was out, you know. And then, so one year I was like, well, I'll try cross country then because it's not a speed thing. And I remember going to practice and they made you run until you got tired and then they told you to run some more. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. So I did one season of that and didn't go back. Um, but so for all my memories of sports, few of them you could, you could narrow down to a memory of a race. But I do have two uh, vivid memories of trips I made from home plate to first base in baseball that, that turned into sort of a race. Uh, the first was early in, in the Happy Valley Little League Championship game. Okay, so this was late, late 80s. Uh, Bell Union was facing off against Coatesville. If you don't know the Happy Valley League, that's Lakers and Celtics in the 80s, right? We, we were everything. Um, uh, my team, Bell Union, and three years in the league, we lost one game. That was the Coatesville and those three years, Coatesville lost two games, those were to us, and we beat everybody else. And so every year, these two teams came to the championship game, and we got up for it, and we were excited about it. And the opposing team shortstop was named Luke Steinberg, one of my best friends, and one of those really annoying guys that's just really good at every sport. Um, I remember he's, just, he's better at everything, and then in high school, he decided he was going to pick up golf, and he got better at me than that. And I was just like, just quit already, you know? But early, early in the game, uh, early in the championship game, I hit a ground ball to short, which is what Luke played, and I still can see him. He, even as an elementary kid, he made a diving stop to his right, hopped up on his feet, threw across the diamond, and me being totally unbiased, still to this day believe I beat the ball of the bag. But the umpire somehow called me out, right? But I don't remember the umpire, because what I remember after that is my coach, Bruce Dorsett, was like 6'4", 250, and he was right in my face. And he was just letting me have it. And do you know why? Well, because every day in practice for three years, Bruce had one rule. When you hit a ground ball, you don't watch it. When you run to first base, you don't look at what the defender's doing. You don't watch that. You look right at first base, and you run as fast and as hard as you can to first base. Because when you're looking elsewhere, you, you might as well be wearing weights because it slows you down. And the reason I can describe to you every single thing Luke did is because I was watching it the whole time. And so I wasn't one foot off the bag before he was meeting me. Right, and he, was, he not so gently reminded me of this rule. Right? But he was right, because I would have been safe had I remembered it. Now, I, I tell you that story because I want you to know, did you know this morning that you're running a race right now? I mean, look at you. You're all so fast-paced and moving, right? Now, you're pretty idle, and, 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 and some of you might be saying, it's been years since I've ran. I'm like, yeah, we know. We can see. Right? But I'm telling you, in this moment, you're in a race. 
And the Bible says that this race has been marked out for you. The course has been laid out before you. And how you run this race is the most important thing about you. In fact, at the end of the race, literally, eternal life or eternal death will be awaiting you. Do we have your attention yet? In fact, in the Bible, the writers, writers, multiple writers of the Bible use this analogy of your life as a race. For instance, Paul was writing to Corinth and he says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training and they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So that's Paul writing to this church he planted and he's saying, guys, your life, your faith life is like a race and the stakes are high. And so my advice is to go into strict training and run in such a way as you get the prize. You see, it's actually not that big of a stretch to see that this analogy of your life as a race works. I mean, think about it. Every single race has a start and a finish. Every single earthly life has a start date and a finish line. There are things that can help you run well. There are things that can really get in your way. And every race is different. There are different links and different tracks and different setups. Your life is unique from everyone else's. And at all sanctioned race, there's an official at the end of the race declaring the winner and declaring the loser. And I want you to know that the reason this place exists, the reason FBN exists, is because we want you to run your race in such a way as to get the prize. We're here because we want you to run your race well. And there exists a singular solution, a solitary hope that will guarantee that you will run your race well. And that solution and hope is available to all, but it is not found within you. It's found within the one who makes us run. Right, now we, we read, Bill read to us from, from Hebrews chapter 12, and chapter 12 is set in the middle of a, of a section of this letter where the author has one goal. And to help you understand that, if you've got your Bibles, look back one chapter with me at Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1. <coughs> Hebrews 11, verse 1 says this, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then down in verse 6, he writes, And without faith... It's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so the entire section, this entire later section of Hebrews, you could wrap it up in one point that faith is the key. That without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, we cannot run our race well. And he will back up his point through the entirety of chapter 11, which is now known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And if we had time this we could read all of chapter 11, and he tells story after story after story of these Old Testament heroes, right? And, and all the good that came from their lives, all that God accomplished through them, and he attributes it all to faith. Right? They had faith in God. They had faith in his promises. They had faith in his goodness. And so these people overcame immense struggles. They endured just horrendous suffering, and God brought so many things through them all by faith. And then he starts chapter 12 with this word, Therefore. And you know what that word means? It means that the entire point of chapter 11 is what's going to follow in these verses. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded, since we have such a great cloud, a great assembly of witnesses, let us run the race that's marked out for us. And I know what your brains did when you hear that verse. You immediately, if you're like me, you, you envision an arena where all these, these old heroes of the faith are watching you run. But that, that's really not what the verse is saying. When the word there, witnesses, the word means, that they, the, that word literally means they give witness to a truth. And so what the author is saying, right, is that their life, their story gives witness to what faith can do in your life. 
And he's saying, with all those examples, with all those stories, with all those witnesses behind us, then let's run. Let's run the the race that's marked out for us. Let's pursue God's will for our lives above everything else. And let's run our race well. And you understand, if you've been here, right, that that's that's what this Heartbeat series is all about, don't you? We believe that you were created. The reason you exist is you were created to have a dynamic, intimate relationship with the God who made you. And that the only way to have that is through Jesus Christ. And the only way to have your soul connected with Jesus is through grace. And so first, you must believe in him. Hear the word faith. It's only by faith that you can be reconciled to God. And secondly, we, we, we must pursue him for all the right reasons, to pursue him above everything else the rest of our life. And when I say this one, I want you to hear me say, run your race well. And so we're in the midst of this sub-series, in the midst of the overarching heartbeat series. We're, we're calling it spiritual detox. And what we're asking for the month of April is this. What actually gets in the way of this? Right, what, what will slow us down in this pursuit? What will hinder us and trip us up? And, and two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of just toxic thoughts, and we, we focused on that, that what you think on most, what your mind dwells on, is eventually what you become. Because the Bible does not separate the heart and mind. And then last week, we looked at just the immense power of, the word, of words, of how with your words, you can speak life and hope and encouragement. With your words, you can speak death and, and really crush people's spirit. And ultimately, that the words reveal, the words we say reveal so much about what's in our heart. Well, today, right, we, we get coaching in this. The author of Hebrews becomes our running coach. And so he's going to tell us things to shed, things to lay aside that will only get in the way of us running well. So let's look at verse 1 again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's start there with the sin that so easily entangles. Now, the imagery here is, is easy to see, isn't it? Right? If, if the analogy is that your life is a race and you want to, want to run it well, then sin is something that entangles you. Right? Picture a cord or a vine that's growing up around your legs and wrapping them up and then eventually wraps up your limbs and it trips you up. It starts with tripping you up and eventually you can't even run at all. And, and hear me this morning when I say this. Nothing. Nothing gets in the way of a passionate pursuit of Jesus more effectively, more efficiently, and more destructively than sin. At the root of every ounce of discord that exists in your life this morning is sin. Your lack of connection or intimacy with God is a result of sin. All the problems that you have in life can be traced back to sin. Every illness, every natural disaster, every tragedy finds its power in sin. The reason that all of us will one day die is sin. And that's not the worst of it. You don't know the worst of it? You can't do anything to fix it. You cannot remove the sin from your heart. You cannot erase the sins of your past. You cannot reconcile yourself to God or pay your debt to him that you owe because of your sin. And so you will die and you can't save yourself. And yet you're not without hope this morning. In you there is no hope. But with Jesus, well, this is why Jesus came. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus had a pretty big vision for his earthly life. He came to establish the kingdom of God. He came to teach us everything that we would ever need to know. He came to perform miracles that would confirm his authority. But above everything else, the reason Jesus came is to deal with the sin problem. And he came to defeat it forever. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. This is that God made him, that's Jesus. So God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I need you to understand how absurd that is. Right, if we take Jesus who absolutely is sinless and pure and spotless and God laid on him all of our sins. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins and not his. And so all the things that you and I and everything have done, everyone has done wrong, the Father unloaded on Jesus and unloaded the punishment for them on him. And I want you to imagine this morning, or just picture with me, the, the, the amount of love that God the Father has for you. Think, think of it this way if you're a parent this morning. Think of you knowing that everyone else is going to die, and the only chance you have to save them is to kill your own child. Not just kill them, but unleash just a horrendous torrent of suffering upon them. On top of that, you know in advance that if you do this, some will accept it. Some will will believe in him. Some will be grateful. Some will reshape their lives around it. But many more are going to reject this. Many more are going to mock the idea that your child ever had to die for them. Many more are just going to spit in the face of that sacrifice. And you do it anyway. You pause for a second and think about the love that God has for you. You understand, don't you, that there's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you could ever do. There's no depths that you could ever sink to that his love won't find you. That his grace is not waiting for you. That he's not pursuing you. I want to be clear this morning, right? There is no forgiveness. There is no hope of eternal life in heaven apart from Jesus Christ. And do you know what's required? It's faith. That's why without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must believe in Jesus. You must ask him to take over your life. And there's no way for you to run your race in a way that you'll get the prize without surrendering your life to Jesus. And there's, there's probably people in here today that we don't need to go any further than this. Because you have zero chance of getting your race started on the right foot. You have zero chance of running well until you believe in Jesus. It's the single most important decision you ever make. And so if you've never done that, then hear nothing else this morning than this. You must believe in him. And today is the day you must do it. And if you have done that this morning, then let's be honest. You know you aren't finished with sin yet, are you? Now, you've been put into a beautiful process. It's a beautiful process of transformation and growth by the power of Jesus where you're shedding more and more and more of your old ways and becoming more and more like Christ. But this is a lifelong process. And so for the rest of our lives, we're going we're gonna to fight against these sinful desires that we have. And that said, I know this morning that there are people in this room who are being tripped up and entangled because there is a habitual, persistent, chronic sin in your life that you just can't shake. And for some of you, maybe years ago, you just shrugged it off. You said, well, that's just who I am. Right? And you don't realize the damage that it's doing to your soul and those around you. But I'm betting that many more of you have this. You know the damage. And you're genuinely tired of it. And you want to be done with it. And I'll, and I'll tell you this one, there is, a, there is an air of mystery to this when it comes to God's timing. Why freedom comes when it does is honestly in his hand. But there is a powerful notion presented to us here in Hebrews 12 that I think is a game changer. Because in the age of grace, we avoid cost way too much to overcome sin. It's like we're, we're allergic to it. But look what, look what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3. It says, consider him, this is Jesus, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then listen to verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now what in the world is the author getting at there? He's just told us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one who suffered. Jesus is the one who did shed his blood. Jesus is the one who endured the cross for the cost of other people's sin. And so what the author is saying is that Jesus did that for you. He took on all of that to pay for your sin. What cost are you willing to pay for your sin? 
Now, we got we to understand, praise God that Jesus took on the eternal penalty for your sin. That, that is done. It's paid for. But when it comes to the struggle against sin, why are we so adverse to costs? How cheap is it for us to say, God, listen, I know you gave up your son. Jesus, I know, I know you shed your blood and died for me, but you don't understand how important it is for me to have internet. God, I know, I know you gave your son, but, and I know that this job is constantly putting in me in situations where my faith and purity are challenged, but you don't understand how important it is for me to stay at this pay scale. I know what you're thinking. I thought Jesus was my best friend. I thought he wanted me to be happy. Well, listen to what your best friend says in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in your hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, take a breath because Jesus was speaking figuratively. Because he knows that a gouged eye and a severed hand doesn't change a heart. And a heart is where all sin originates. But don't relax too much because what Jesus is saying is important. Here's what he's saying. Sin is an incredibly drastic threat and sometimes incredibly drastic measures need to be taken to defeat it. Make no mistake about it. Jesus takes sin very seriously and rightfully so. Our sin cost him his own life. Our sin still harms us and those around us today. And if we're ever going to get back to the heartbeat of our faith, then we need to be in this constant cycle of inviting God's scrutiny in our lives, confessing the things that he reveals to us to be sinful, and then repenting of those sins and asking him to help us turn from them. And if there is an habitual sin in your life, then I want you to add this prayer to your repeated prayers of forgiveness and falling and forgiveness and falling, forgiveness and falling. Try this out. God, what costs should I endure to rid this of my life for good? What is it you're asking me to give up? What painful steps should I take? What, what temptation should I just rid of my life entirely? Because nothing trips, nothing entangles, nothing consumes you in your race like sin. And so we must take it to Jesus and then do whatever it takes to throw it off. Now, sin's not the only thing we're told to throw off, is there? Look at verse 1 again, because this language is important. He says, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, listen to this language. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so there's a, there's a separate category there that the NIV says, throw off everything that hinders. And your translations might say, throw off weights or encumbrances. The, the, the literal Greek word there is that whatever is prominent, it's a bulk, it's a mass, it's a protuberance. I like that word. You want to run around with a protuberance? Right, the idea is that this is a burden, this is a weight. Now, the next Summer Olympics is in 2020. And I want you to imagine for a second that, that you go home after a long day, you sit down to watch the Olympics, and, and, and they're getting ready to have a 100-meter dash, and, and people start lining up, and the first five or six runners all line up in their track shoes and, and their outfits, and then the sixth guy comes walking out, and he's got boots and jeans on. And he's wearing a backpack, and he's carrying lumber. Now, as far as I know, that's not against the rules, right? But, but how dumb would it be to try to run a race like that? We would know immediately he's not taking it serious because any athlete who would willingly carry extra weight, we would know that they aren't taking their race seriously. Instead, what you're going to notice when you watch that is that every single aspect of your life has been meticulously planned. 
their outfit will not be a hindrance at all. It'll be designed for racing. Their shoes will give them traction on the track, but also be lightweight. There'll be nothing extra weighing them down. And not only that, they will have trained for that day. They will have eaten for that day. They will have taken supplements, all designed to help them run that race well. Because elite athletes don't choose between good and bad. Elite athletes choose between better and best. And one of the most amazing things that there is about grace is that you and I, in Jesus Christ, are free from the law this morning. Jesus has purchased for us immense levels of freedom, and, and honestly, this freedom is so great that many of us struggle with it. We don't know what to do with it. Right? We have a hard time wrapping our minds around this idea and embracing this idea of freedom because rules are clear, and rules are easier, and rules are, are black and white, and it's very simple to judge. Tell me not to do something, and then I know whether or not I can do it, and I know whether or not I'm better than other people who do or don't do it. But freedom is not following rules. Freedom is following the lead of the Holy Spirit in your life. Freedom is walking in step with the Spirit. Freedom is not what you do, but why you do it. And the truth is, this takes a whole nother level of care and attention. I want to unpack this for you. Listen, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets... I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's a huge theological statement. Jesus is declaring that he is going to be the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament law. So all the moral parts, all the civil parts, all the religious parts, all the ceremonial aspects of the law will find their perfect and complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. There's a reason that when you come here, we don't celebrate the Old Testament feast, right? There's a reason that Brandon didn't slaughter a goat between the second and third song this morning, right? Because the law has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law in its entirety and all its demands perfectly. Praise God. That's huge. But I also want you to listen to what happens to those moral commands of the law now that we're in the age of grace. Matthew 5, Jesus keeps talking in verse 27. He said, you've heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. That's the law. Now listen to what he does. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I want you to remember, Jesus, in Jesus' time, he came and taught at the height of the hype around the law. The law was everything in that day. Right? They, they would kill, Jews would kill you for not following it. Just look at the book of Acts, what they do to Christians. They also measured themselves against others by the law. And so Jesus is teaching in that age and in that intensity, and he's got this huge crowd listening to him, and he says, you've heard you should not commit adultery. And I can tell you what happened in the crowd. So many of them started puffing their chests out, be like, yeah, I never cheated on my wife. Got that. But then the problem is he just kept talking. But I tell you, if you've even lusted after a woman, you're an adulterer. Wait, what now? And it wasn't just adultery. If we had time, we could read all of Matthew 5. He said, you've heard that you shall not commit murder. All those people in the crowd, I haven't murdered anybody. But then Jesus kept talking. If you have anger in your heart, are you called someone a fool? You're in danger of the fires of hell. You've you've been told by the law that if you you want to get rid of your wife, all you got to do is give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that other than sexual immorality, if you divorce her, you're committing adultery. You've heard that you should not break an oath that you make before the the Lord in the law. But I'm telling you that you are not to make an oath at all. You need to be a person who's so honest that your yes is yes and your no is no. You've heard an eye for an eye and a cheek for cheek. But I tell you, if you get struck on one cheek, you turn the other cheek to them. You've heard that it says that you need to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, you need to love your enemy 
enemy and pray for them. Do you see the pattern that Jesus is building? Grace is not a license for you to do whatever you want. With grace actually comes higher standards. We're called higher. Yes, Jesus fulfilled the law. There are no set rules for you to follow. And as weird as that is to wrap your mind around, there is a command that you're to hang your entire life on. Because Jesus says the entire law was wrapped up in it, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And hear me, everything that you do needs filtered through that standard. So here's what this means. Now, sex outside of a marriage between a husband and wife isn't wrong because of some thousand-year-old rule. It's wrong because it's a gift that God gave to a husband and wife in a covenant marriage relationship before him. And to go outside of that is an act devoid of love for him and the person he gave you. Children and teens, now, now disobeying your parents isn't wrong because of some thousand-year-old rule. Right? Now it's wrong because God established authorities in our life for our good. And so to circumvent that and rebel against that is an act devoid of love for him. Now, for me to speak critically or use foul language isn't wrong because there's some rule that tells me that. 1 Corinthians 10 says that everything I do, including word and deed, I should do to the glory of God. And so to take the ability that he gave me to speak life and blessings and speak curses instead is an act devoid of love for him. I'm not breaking rules. I'm grieving the heart of God. And that's entirely different. And I want to tell you all this for a couple reasons. Number one is this. Like we've been talking about, getting to the heart of the matter is always harder It's always more difficult, and the reason that's good for you is because it increases your need for Jesus. And the more and more you become aware of how much you need him, the better off you are. And I also tell it to you this morning in the context of Hebrews 12 so you can understand this biblical principle. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. He's quoting the Corinthian church back to them. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. I'm going to make this simple as I can. This is the Brett Parks paraphrase. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's possible. In fact, it's likely, maybe it's even guaranteed that, that you, all of you in this room have a weight in your life. And these are things that aren't sinful. They aren't inherently wrong. They're just not helpful in your pursuit of Jesus. These are things that are permissible. You're, you have a right to do them. You, you have the freedom to do them. And they're, they're things that for others may be good and well and fine, but for you, they've become a weight. And the tricky part is I'm not going to be able to specifically identify them for you this morning. Right? Because there is no direct command against them. They are not inherently sinful, but I will tell you this, God can identify them. For some of you, it's a hobby. For others, it's the idol of sports. For others, it's social media. For others, it's a, it's a passion or an interest you have or a product you sell or a business you run. Others, it's just worshiping your kids. Again, it, this, is, this is different than sin. Right? But they're hindrances to you running your race well. So I'm going to give you four things that will help you identify your weights. These are, these are things that are not inherently sinful, but they've, if they've reached this level, they are not good for you anymore. And number one is this, that they simply own too much of you. They just have, it has too much of your time, too much of your passion, too much of your resources, too much of your thought life, too much of your emotional investment, too much of your heart goes to this thing. If it's other than Jesus, it's simply become a weight for you. 
The second is that this is something that could lead you in temptation. And this is where you need to be aware of your own sin struggles. You need to know your past struggles and the things that you have been inclined to do because there are things that others can do that you shouldn't do. There are places maybe others can go that you shouldn't go based on your own proclivity to sin. Thirdly, it's just something that's just not beneficial. Right? It's just, it's not inherently sinful, but when you do it, it doesn't lead you to fuller devotion to Jesus. It doesn't lead you to more and more fruits of the Spirit. It just doesn't benefit you. And then fourthly, it just keeps you from centering your thoughts and minds and heart on Jesus. Anything in your life, sinful or not, that hits that list has become a weight. And you want to know how to run your race really well? It's not just throwing off your weight. Look at what we're told again in, in chapter 12. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And then verse 2, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, I have never been good at fast-paced card games. Okay, this is just, it's, just, it's, it's a thing with my brain. If, if I can take my time and think about something in strategy, I can focus on one thing, I'm pretty good at it. But if there's four or five different things happening at once, I'm terrible. And this is okay for me, but it's bad for my wife, Corinne, because she's excellent at them. And so all her favorite games to play, like Dutch Blitz, just have 13 different things happening at once. And, and the problem with that is I'm a sore loser. And so I just don't play, right? You remember Herm Edwards when he was the coach in the New York Jets and he said, hello, you play to win the game? I add to that, and if you can't, quit before you start, okay? So that's just, it's a good, now, don't do that in life, okay? Just do it in cards. But, here, but here's what happened, right? Three years ago, uh, I went on a trip to Haiti, uh, on a medical missions trip, and at the end of the day, when you, in, in Haiti, you go back to this guest house, and what's really neat about that is there's absolutely no internet and no TV, and so you're actually forced to interact with people. How about that? And it actually becomes one of, the, one of the neatest parts of the trip. And so every night what we end up doing was just the whole group end up sitting around a table and playing cards. And somebody suggested the game Spoons. Now, I never played Spoons. And so I asked them to describe it to me. And I quickly figured out this is a fast-paced game. And I really don't want to play this. But in Haiti, you don't have a lot of options. So I'm like, go ahead. Just tell me what's going on. All right, so the idea is that you, 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 everybody gets four cards, and if there's seven people playing, then there's six spoons in the middle of the table. And then when the game starts, you take a card from your right and pass it to the left, and, and the goal is you get to be the first person with four matching cards in your hand, and then you reach out and grab a spoon, and then what happens? Then it's on, because right, then everyone else needs to reach out and grab one, and whoever doesn't have a spoon at the end is out. And you play that until you whittle it down, and then there's eventually the winner. And so, like, we'll just do a practice hand for you, Brett. And so I'm trying to, trying to get this car and pass it on, and I'm focused on all these things. And I look up, and there's no spoons in the middle of the table. And I'm like, what the heck? You know? And then they're getting ready to start the game, and I think, wait a minute. What's the purpose of this game? The purpose is not to get four matching cards, is it? The purpose is to just make sure you get a spoon. And so for the rest of the night, guess what I did? I didn't even look at the cards in my hand. Whatever somebody threw to me, I just threw on to the next person. I couldn't tell you a single card I had, but every single time there was a hand that went out for the spoon, guess whose hand was right behind it? And I made it to the final two all night long. And I hesitate to tell that story because I'm worried that some of you, the only thing you'll take from the sermon is that strategy for spoons going forward. But I want you to understand what the author is getting at here. Because there's immense value in fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because when he becomes the center, when he becomes the focus, the view of all we do, everything else becomes clear. 
Right? You stop getting distracted by less important things. You stop trying to build your hand and you stay focused on what your actual purpose for living is. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Matthew 6, Jesus said, but seek first, that's of highest importance, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those other things will be given to you as well. You see, when I filter every single thing I do through the lens of Jesus, when I run all my decisions by his, when I set my priorities based on his teaching and his wisdom, that gives my life immense clarity and purpose. But when my eyes are drawn to lesser things, right, when I'm distracted by material things, when I'm consumed with, with temporary things, when I'm focused on things of this earth and not things of eternity, then even when those things aren't inherently bad, they do not permit me to run my race well. So what do, what do we do? Now that we know that we're in a race, what do we do? Well, step number one is this. We must take our sin very seriously. Yes, this morning. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning and you believed in him, then you have been forgiven. You have been redeemed. Eternal life is waiting on you. You live in the age of grace and know that is not a pass for you to view your sin with apathy. Because there is nothing as efficient or as effective at, running, at ruining your race and sin. I don't know if you track this stuff, right? I don't know what you, what you track, but there, if you've been tracking, you know there's, a, there's this wave of well-known sort of big-name pastors in recent weeks and years who have just lost their bearings and had to give up their ministries in scandal. And I bring it up for you for a couple reasons. And number one is this. Don't ever put your faith in a man or a woman. Put it in Jesus. You come here, don't you dare elevate anyone on this platform or anyone in this building other than Jesus Christ. And secondly, when we read those stories, our reaction should be this, but by the grace of God go I. Because there is no follower of Christ who is above getting entangled by their own sin. And we need to ask God to develop in us a fear and a hatred for our own sin. Please, let him deal with other sin. That's not your job. But ask him to give us the boldness to go to town on our own. And if you have a sin that's owned you for some time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this this morning, it may be time to shed some blood. I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that it's time that you tell that person you don't want to tell. That it's time that you get rid of that convenience that you've been posturing as if it's a need. It's time for you to take a painful step to show the Lord that you're serious and you want him to rid this of your life forever. Because we cannot run our race freely and efficiently if we're owned by our sins. So number one, we must take our sins seriously. Number two, if we want to be elite, we got to throw off the weights. And not because you have to, not because you've been commanded to or, or compulsed to, but because you want to. Not because it's not permissible, because it's not beneficial. Because you want to become an elite runner. So you must take a look at your life, take a look at your schedule, take a look at your purchases, take a look at your time. What, just ask the question, what simply has too much of me? What am I investing too much in? What, what, what am I doing that, that's not leading me to walk in the spirit? What, what's just taking too much of our family's life? And here's a goal I want to hand you going forward. As, as you sit down by yourself or as a couple and you plan your life and you plan your calendar, you decide what you're going to commit to as a family, what you're going to say yes or no to, stop asking what are we going to do. Start asking why. And then let the why drive the what. 
Because as slaves of King Jesus, we make it our aim to serve him. And so dialing back on the amount of money we spend on entertainment, getting rid of social media, get, reducing the number of hours to go to sports or stopping listening to things that distract us from his work are small, small prices to pay. And here's one more warning. When, if you do this, please don't throw off these weights in a showy, braggy way that brings attention to yourself. This is between you and the Lord. Throw off the weight so you can run your race more efficiently. And then third, it's easy. It's right here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Start your day with him, unloading the burden of that day's results on him. End your day with him, thanking him and leaving what happened in his hand. And throughout it, fight to keep yourself aware of his work. Fight to keep yourself aware of his presence and live this life in a pursuit of Jesus. Get in his word and get to know him better. It's no accident that after Richard started reading the Bible that he made the decision he made. Because he got more of Jesus. Arrange your life around his standards with this idea. If it's important to Jesus, it needs to become important to us. So I want you to imagine this morning knowing with great clarity the purpose for your life. Knowing that you have your sins completely forgiven. Knowing that eternal life is given to you. And knowing that your life is a race and more importantly you know how to run it well. And I want you to imagine at the end of it, the one who made it all possible waiting for you to welcome you home by saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. I told you before, there were two vivid trips to first base that are always logged in my memory bank. I told you about the first one. Well, the second one occurred a few years later. This time I was in the Cloverdale Little League, a little older age. And I can remember the setup. I was the bottom of the last inning, we had a runner on third. There's two outs. I was up to bat, and, and Cloverdale Lily didn't do extra innings. And so we were either going to end in a tie, which means nobody won, or I was going to get a base hit here, and we were going to win the game. And I, I remember this was about as nervous as I've ever been on an athletic field. And, and the umpire was a guy named Dave Brinkman. He knew me and the pitcher well. And between each pitch, he kept telling, hey, guys, just take a deep breath. Just relax. Because he could see how worked up we were. And I remember just wanting the bat to be over. I didn't want to drag it out. It would be a long thing. So I said, I'm just going to go up there hacking. I'm not going to look at any pitches. I'm just going to swing. And so I got two strikes on me pretty quick. And then I fouled off the third. And then I fouled off the fourth. And then I fouled off the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth. It ended up being a 14-pitch at bat. To which point, my legs were just like shaking. I was like, please just let this be done, you know. And eventually on the 14th pitch, I hit it and it was fair. And it was right down the third baseline. And guess what? I can't tell you a single thing the third baseman did. Because the first thing that flashed in my mind was Bruce Dorsett, who met me at first base three years earlier and said, what did you watch the ball for? And so I just looked right at first base and I ran as hard and as fast as my slow white legs would take me. And it felt like an eternity, right? But I ran and ran and ran. And I remember hearing the ball hit the glove around the same time as my foot hit the bag. And again, I thought I was safe, but I thought I was a safe few years before. And guess, right after I said in bed, guess where I looked? I didn't look out in center field beyond the fence where I knew my parents were. I didn't turn around and look at my coach. I didn't see if the runner scored. I didn't look at the cute girl from third grade sitting in the second row because let's be honest, she was looking at me at this moment. Where did I look? Right to the side of the base, there was an umpire. And he was going to judge me based on whether I beat the ball there or not. And if he liked the way I ran my race, he was going to make this sign. And if he was going to claim me out, he was going to make this sign. And so guess what he did? I mean, I wouldn't tell you the story if I was out. <laughs> right? 
Uh, there's no way I'd tell you the story. He did this, and the party was on to celebrate with teammates. We went out and got ice cream. It's one of my favorite memories of sports. But I tell you that story to tell you this. One day your race will end. And when your race ends, there's only going to be one opinion that matters. When that, on that day, you'll have such clarity in that day. You're not going to look around to see what anybody else thinks. You're not going to look and see what your parents thought. You're going to look and see what your mentor thought. You're not going to look and see what other people thought. You're going to look at the judge. And he will declare you safe or out based on whether or not you placed your faith in him in this life. And in that moment, Jesus' opinion will be the only thing that matters to you. And in that moment, here's what else I know. At every step you took towards him, every cost that you endured to rid your life of sin, every weight that you threw off to run well for him, you won't regret a single one of them. Because you're in a race. And it's the most important one you ever run. And the only way to run well is by running straight to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for this clear analogy from your word. God, this truth that, that we have a race that's been marked out for us and you want us to run it well by throwing off the weights and throwing off the sin and fixing our eyes on Jesus. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who's, who says, I'm ready. I just don't know how to do this. I'm ready, but I want to believe in Jesus. Would today be the day they just simply say yes to you? God, they, right now in their seats, they would just surrender their life to you and pray, God, I, I don't know what all this means, but I want to believe in you. I want to start this life with Jesus and run my race well. God, would you meet them where they are and save them and forgive them? And God, I pray that, that for those of us who have, who have done that, God, we would just invite your scrutiny and your scope over our life this morning, that we would identify a cost or a sacrifice that, that you're asking us to pay to rid that sin that's, that's entangled us for far too long from our heart. And then, Lord, the hardest step will be the weights because of the things that we're permitted to do. There are things that we're allowed to do. They're just not beneficial. So, Lord, may we have the boldness and the heart for you to just throw those off as well. And we ask that you would do this in our lives to the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to give you a couple moments now to just spend between you and the Lord. And like I said, if, you, if you've never surrendered your life to him, never given your life to him, this is your moment just, just to pray to him and ask him to forgive you and come in. For the rest of you, if you're struggling with an habitual sin this morning, why don't you just spend this time asking God to identify a cost that you can endure to let him know how serious you are about him ridding this of your life. And the rest, let's just ask God to take a look at our lives and look at our schedule and look at our priorities and to identify the weights that are just bringing us down.